On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to give you some good news. Isn't that nice? Good news about the city's finances. Less than a year, half a year after we were expecting to be in dire financial straits, the city has a big surplus. How did this happen? Well, we'll talk about it. We are also going to be discussing your constitutional rights, your charter freedoms, which some say are being trampled during COVID. Is that the case? And if it is the case, is it okay? Because, hey, it's COVID. It's a pandemic. Or is it not okay? We'll talk about that. And Don Robertson joins us as he does every week. Lots of stuff to talk about. Women's hockey, the Olympics, the Montreal Canadiens fans. Lots of stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Last summer into last fall, if you're a regular listener or if you just follow the news, you will probably remember that we were talking about a looming financial disaster in Hamilton. And you'll recall that at that time, the city's bookkeepers and auditors and all the all the other people who talk money were warning of a possible 50 to 60, even more than that, million dollar budget shortfall because of COVID. And this was, and the reason was because people out of jobs, they can't pay their property taxes, businesses are not open, on and on and on. This was going to be, I don't know if catastrophic is a fair word, but it was going to be a huge problem because in the middle of the pandemic, while people are out of work, to make out, well, cities, let me back up, municipalities cannot run a deficit by law. Provinces can. Federal governments can, cities cannot. So to cover a 60, say, million dollar deficit, property taxes were going to have to go up by double digits or services were going to have to be slashed or projects that were on the books were going to have to be canceled. Well, it wasn't just me saying this either. Um, As I say, lots of people saying, including the mayor and councillors and bureaucrats and others saying this was going to be an enormous, enormous problem. Well, something funny, and in this case we can say funny because it's a good thing. Something funny happened on the way to destruction. We don't have a $62 million deficit today. We have a $50 million surplus. Huh? How did that happen? Well, let me bring in Lloyd Ferguson, Ancaster Councillor, Chair of the Audit Committee. Uh, Lloyd, this is a rather impressive and unexpected, I think, swing of the pendulum. How did this happen? Do we have Lloyd? We're trying to get Lloyd Ferguson. We'll, We'll get him in just a second. Little technical problem here. But yes, $112 million roughly as a swing from the deficit that was anticipated to the surplus that we now have. And think of what, in the, in the, in the scope of federal and provincial budgets that are now in the hundreds of billions of dollars, This sounds like peanuts. This is nothing. But in a municipal political system, again, where you cannot run debts, you cannot, you can for capital projects, but not for year by year operating budgets, 50 to $60 million. That's salaries. That's other things that have to be cut. You cannot just say, well, we'll pay it off next year. You can't. You have to deal with it then. That is a startling amount of money that would have affected all kinds of things as it comes to what we would have been able to do in the city and specifically what you would have ended up paying in your taxes. There were people at that time saying if this projected $62 million deficit came to fruition, you, the homeowner, the taxpayer, would have been facing tax, municipal property tax increases in the double digits. Right now you get on a typical year, two, two and a half, three, up to maybe 4% increase. Now make that, I don't know, I'm guessing, but double digits, you would have had 13, 14, 15, 16% increase. Why this becomes even a bigger problem is because the reason that the municipal levy, the municipal coffers were low is because people were out of work. And now you're going to have the same city that isn't being paid by the people because people are out of work saying to the people who are out of work, oh, by the way, we need you to pay way more taxes. You can see the problem here. 
you can see how this would have been rather disastrous. At the time, there were talk about you know, selling all kinds of things, stopping all kinds of things. We do have Lloyd Ferguson now. Sorry for the technolo technological problem there, Counselor, but we, we appreciate you being back here. Um, I just said before bringing you in the first time that going from a $62 million deficit to a $50 million surplus is a huge swing of the pendulum. How did this happen? Well, you know, we all stand there with bated breath. And by the way, the technology or something just starts screeching terribly in my ears. So I had to hang up. So we're on my cell phone now. And so if I lose you again, I'll try again on the land. No problem. But, uh, yeah, listen, every year we get a forecast in the, in the midsummer, early fall, about uh, from our, our, our finance staff as to where their forecasting will be at year end. And yes, they were showing a, a real problem with uh, big deficits, what they presented to us. And of course, so at, you know, being chair of the Audit Finance Administration Committee, I was deeply concerned about that because. That's a big hit if we have that kind of a shortfall. But we're going through tough times right now. We're going through this horrible pandemic and a lot of uncertainties, and we're in uncharted water. So I got to tell you, I was hanging on to my chair when I slipped the envelope and got the package to take a look at, uh, at the report that we took to committee last Thursday. And to my pleasant surprise, it showed an actual surplus of $49,261 for the city. And, $49 million. I'm sorry, a million, yeah. 49 million, yeah. <laughs> These big numbers, Scott. Yeah, 49 million, 200. I'm trying to balance my own budget here at the same time. Uh, $49,261,000. And so uh, this is great news for our taxpayers. And uh, But when you drill down on it, you know, there's been a lot of criticism in the past of what the senior levels of government and how they support us. But they came through big time uh, through the year. Uh, in helping us with this pandemic cost. I know they, I remember they put $17 million into uh, uh, losses because of lack of ridership for uh, transit plus uh, being, giving protection to the riders and, and the drivers. Um, that was $12 million, sorry. They give the, the city $17 million on a safe restart. There's also some money for housing. And then on the flip side of that, we found out that we were able to save a lot of money because all our recreation facilities were closed you know, because of COVID. And the staff weren't laid off, but they were reassigned to public health to do contact tracing and ultimately to help with the, the whole vaccine rollout. And so they were redeployed in other areas. So library staff, recreation staff are the two big ones. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So Lloyd, we have this 50 million now. Where does this go? Does this go into some sort of rainy day fund for down the road, or is this already designated? What happens with a $50 million surplus? It goes into about 20 uh, different reserve funds to replenish them. Some of them are getting dangerously low. You know, we put $2 million into what's called the tax stabilization reserve. So as something comes up through the year to bite us, we have a reserve to help cover that off. And, and so $2 million went into that. We put $3 million in. Uh, to the early year system reserve. And there's been a strain on that system, probably because of COVID, but that uh, was getting dangerously low also. So we were able to put $3 million back there. You probably heard last week the uh, Red Hill uh, Creek Judicial Review mm -hmm. is a runaway train from expense side, and uh, they're now forecasting it could be $12 million. We had $7 million set aside for it, and so $5 million went into that. Um, we have uh, a development charges exemption. It's a complicated topic, but people pay development charges, but there's exemptions given out for different categories, whether it's places of worship or I'm trying to think of a few that would be exempt. But we still have to spend that money in order to keep our, our sewage treatment plant and our, our major arterial roads looked after. So we put $15 million into that. And the big one is uh, we put $20 million into the COVID emergency reserve because we're not finished this thing yet. Uh, we don't know whether the senior levels of government can continue to support us. So we got to preserve. If it's not used, we can bring it out and, and use it for other things. But those are the big ones where we, we put that $49 million in order to help us get through further difficult times in COVID and replenish the reserves that were dangerously low. And all this, despite the fact that we only had a, well, most urban areas had a 1.8% tax increase after the area rating adjustment. So it's one of the lowest tax increases in 2021 also. 
re renewing reserves sounds like a very good idea. And I, I think most people would agree. We, you need to have money for a rainy day. How confident are you though? And I ask with all respect, how confident are you that you and your council colleagues are going to be able to resist the temptation with found money to redeploy some of this money to pet projects or other things that are a little sexier than reserve refueling? Well, it, it, it was approved unanimously at the uh, Finance Committee meeting last Thursday. I expect a very strong support for this also at, at Council on Wednesday when this gets ratified. And, and uh, it, it's important that we manage the funds of the taxpayers well. It's, it's important that we have, when these opportunities come along, and they're rare, to have some extra money to top up our reserves for other future rainy days. Um, we, we, you know, we, we got the Shadow Creek thing staring us in the face, too, but we have some reserves to help cover off that. So uh, the taxpayers should feel comfortable that we're, we're in good financial shape now. Our, our standard poor's rating is always exceptional, and and this will certainly be helpful to, to bring them up. But to answer your question, I, I could never predict that, Scott. I, I can't get in the heads of my colleagues. But I can tell you that it was unanimously supported at the committee, which is uh, five or six councillors. We know, you've heard this, we've heard this, everyone listening has heard this. We know that both levels of upper levels of government, province and feds, are heavy, heavily in debt and growing and huge deficits as, as a result of COVID. I'm betting that there are people listening right now who are saying, wait a second, considering how huge their deficits are, is this being overly generous to the cities? Why not just balance the city budget for the year rather than giving the cities extra money? Because if they did it for Hamilton, I'd betting they did it for lots and lots and lots of other cities, that could add up to hundreds of millions of dollars. Is it well, too except, generous? Yeah, except, Scott, you heard me say that $20 million is being set aside for future emergency, uh, COVID emergency reserve. That's uh, almost half of it is, is going in for that. And uh, they, the senior levels of government, they typically don't call it claw back. They, they did claw back a few things. Uh, I took a look at that report just a few minutes ago, and, and there were some that had to be repaid. And I'm just trying to pick out a couple. There was uh, $2 million to public health funding and accountability agreement. There was $500,000 for pandemics, temporary pandemic pay. So there's been a few. It looks like it's a grand total of about $3 million that they did claw back. So it looks like it's been audited. It's been spent accordingly. And, uh, you know, we're going to take this opportunity now to make our finances even stronger than they were before. And, and provide some future relief to our taxpayers. It is good news. I mean, we always, as I say, we're desperate for good news these days. There's some good news for Hamilton. Uh, appreciate it. Lord, uh, Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, thanks for the time today. Anytime. Bye-bye. $50 million in the red, in the black, as opposed to $62 million in the red. That is, um, we'll take it. I mean, it's, let's, let's be clear. Taxpayers' money, it's still taxpayers' money. It's all, I mean, it comes from the same place, ultimately, but because of some accounting situations with municipalities and other levels, I mean, it's good news. It, it is good news. It's all taxpayers' money. I get it. But this is very helpful. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we work through the various rules and protocols and lockdowns and restrictions and all kinds of other things related to the pandemic, there are increasing, and there have been for a while, but increasing questions about whether our constitutional rights are being violated. There's a bigger question, though, that's being asked by a lot of people because many people are saying, well, yeah, of course our constitutional rights are being violated. We'll get to that in a second, whether or not that's true. But a lot of people are saying, Okay, they are, but does it really matter? This is a pandemic. Normal rules don't apply. This is a different world we're living in at this moment. So even if my freedoms are somehow being restrained, I shouldn't argue this. I shouldn't fight this. I should be okay with this. Is, is that the case? Is that true? What are the rules here? What are the rules about your constitutional freedoms? in a pandemic when the government decides you should be not having the traditional freedoms that you would normally have. Ryan O'Connor is a lawyer who has an interest in public policy and federal and provincial legislation. He joins us now. Ryan, thanks for the time tonight. Really appreciate it. Good to be with you tonight, Scott. Uh, you, you've heard, I, I know you've heard there are a lot of people who say 
Um, the actions that are taken during COVID under normal circumstances would not be seen as fair or legal, or we would have fought them or we would have been upset with them. But you know what? These are unusual times. We've just got to roll with it. And if they take away some freedoms in the bigger picture for the bigger issue, that's okay. What do you say to that? Well, what's the point of having a charter of rights and freedoms if it's not going to protect you when the state is more likely to infringe upon those freedoms? And that's in a time of uh, economic and public health crisis like we're in right now. You can look all around you and see that the, the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is being violated by uh, lockdown restrictions and now shutdown restrictions, the stay-at-home order, your inability to go and practice your faith, discriminatory treatment of certain gra- uh, groups of individuals. So, I mean, the Constitution is really not worth the paper written on, Scott, if you can't assert uh, the rights and freedoms in it to protect you in a time of crisis. Now, again, I I mean, look, there are people absolutely, I think, on both sides of this aisle. There are people right now listening saying, I agree with you, Ryan, 1000%. And there are others saying, yeah, but this is a unique time. And I mean, it is a unique time. What what should the government be able to do at a unique time when there is a health issue and a, a pandemic going on? Well, I don't dispute the fact that the government has the right to promote public health measures to uh, that it feels fit to ensure uh, the safety of the community and to, and to promote public health. I don't think any reasonable person, Scott, is disputing that. But the question is, are the measures appropriate and are they based on evidence? Look at the example of uh, religious practice. So in Ontario, we're all in the shutdown zone in every region of the province. Um, if you wish to practice your religion, attend your church, mosque, synagogue, temple, Zawara, um, you can only attend um, with uh, a group that is uh, 10 persons maximum. Even if your facility, for example, is 10,000 or 20,000 square feet, there's an arbitrary cap on your attendance at at your religious institution. And the question is why? Uh, The government hasn't provided adequate justification to describe and and justify why uh, the cap is 10. Why isn't it 20? Why isn't it 30? Why is Costco permitted to have a 25% capacity limit, but a religious institution isn't? And there's so many different examples of arbitrary treatment um, that really engaged the Charter of Rights. Again, I, I, there's no issue that um, the uh, province should be able to promote public health. But when it's doing so in an arbitrary and discriminatory way, it, it really undermines the public health measure, messaging of the, of the measures that's implemented. What about the idea that we would say, okay, I mean, you talk about arbitrary numbers. And again, a lot of people are going to agree with you, especially with the examples you give. You know, why can a gigantic room hold the same number as a tiny room? What about the idea, though, you say, well, yeah, but the government can't possibly go around and measure every place. So to put just one number so that they can have a standardized thing where they could enforce this, that's that makes some sense, even though it may not be fair. But how else could they possibly do it? Well, they could do it using the example of religious institutions, Scott. They could do so based on a percentage capacity limit until the shutdown, which uh, uh, started on uh, April 3rd. Um, there was a percentage capacity limit, even in the most strictly regulated zones, such as Toronto and Peel, with 15% capacity to occupy a, a space for religious service, provided that persons can be distant. So we know that percentage capacity limits have been implemented with respect to Costco, with respect to uh, you know other places where the public can, can gather uh, and enter. Um, so why the arbitrary uh, cap? But also, why is it that, you know, you can go to a gym if you're a professional hockey player for the Leafs or the Senators or an Olympic athlete, but everyone else in the province, uh, aside from a small exception for persons experiencing disabilities, are banned from the gym. And that's another issue that engages the charter in terms of uh, the ability to be free from discrimination, your ability to protect uh, your mental and physical health. So there's another example of just the arbitrariness of the rules. The government has decided that gyms are safe because they allow the Leafs to operate one, and they allow the Sens to operate one, and they allow Olympians to train. So why can't other Ontarians using strict public health measures, uh, hygiene standards, why can't they go to the gym as well? You know, you've used a few examples already of areas where people would argue that our constitutional freedoms have been overstepped or whatever. I expect that there will probably be more coming as well. I mean, this is, we've already heard about things like a vaccine passport. The federal government has said they're not going to do it. Not everyone is fully believing that. Um, This is probably not the extent of where these limits are going to be pushed, I would guess. Oh, I don't think so either. I think the post-COVID world is going to be full of restrictions that are imposed by private businesses, and they have the right to 
you know, to a certain degree, allow persons on their premises, um, you know, within reason and in compliance, obviously, with the Human Rights Code, they can't discriminate. But I certainly don't think we see the end of this. As, as restrictions get loosened, Scott, there's, we're still not going back to sort of the way things were in late February 2020 by the time the summer comes, even if case counts um, uh, decline and it appears that they will decline perhaps with seasonality or, or for other reasons. So I don't think this is the end of it by any means. I think we should be concerned about vaccine passports, the ability to travel. A uh, vaccine passport in and of itself would be a would be an unjustified violation of the Charter of Rights. And in, uh, in many circumstances, we'd have to see how that plays out. So certainly I don't think that this this is the end of it. It could frankly only be just the beginning. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is where this story and this issue becomes so difficult, because if the government doesn't either government, whatever government, if government, let's just take out the the, if government doesn't take aggressive steps and try to be safe, you have a whole bunch of people who are going to be really doing it. And yet if government does do these kinds of things, people are angry with them and say they're doing too much. So how do they, what does a government do in a situation like this? How does it satisfy people? Well, government's in an unenviable position right now, Scott. I don't disagree with that. I mean, it's sort of a darned if you do, darned if you uh, don't uh, approach. But I think what the government should be doing is, is, is looking at you know, what we need to do to obviously to curtail viral spread, but at the same time, minimally impair, um, you know, the, uh, the violations of rights and freedom and also use evidence. But there's, to use an example, gyms are, like I said, effectively shuttered in the province and, and you know, you have a would have a right to go to the gym to preserve your mental and physical health. Uh, arguably, that obviously engages the charter rights, your ability to go and join a fitness class, et cetera, also engages the charter not to be discriminated against. But in a situation like that, there's, there's no real evidence to suggest, for example, that, um, that gyms were the cause of viral spread, yet they've been unfairly vilified. So I don't think it's too much to ask, to ask government and public health officials to be able to uh, give us the evidence to justify the measures that they're taking. Why have they privileged large retail um, uh, institutions like Costco and Walmart throughout the entire pandemic and certain industries, but, but others have been vilified without any, without any sort of evidence presented that those places that are being shut down, patios or another good example, actually contribute to viral spread because uh, we understand that they don't. So is this, is this, are some of these freedoms um, dependent on evidence? If there was evidence to prove that doing X or doing Y would save people, would that change our view on what freedoms are temporarily allowed to be restricted? Well, all of our charter rights are subject to uh, what's called a reasonable limits. Um, so, you know, government, to a certain degree, when it regulates the economy, when it regulates your lives, it, it may be infringing upon the charter. But the government has to, when challenged uh, in court, the government has to justify uh, with evidence that the measures they've taken, for example, minimally impair the charter right or, for example, are not arbitrary or they go too far, they're overbroad. And so the government should have to provide evidence because in a court of law, when these measures are challenged, there's several constitutional challenges that uh, are ongoing right now. I'm involved in a couple of them myself to some of the uh, uh, excesses of the lockdown measures. If, if they're not able to justify with evidence, then, then those are not going to survive scrutiny in the court and the court will strike them down. So I would argue that the government should be justifying to the public why these measures need to be taken. And if they were doing that, um, it's quite likely that some of the measures would, would be seen as, as going over the top and not addressing the issue of viral spread, frankly, just uh, you know, are being opposed uh, for pandemic theater reasons and not actually because they're required. And, and I, I raised that question because I've seen, and you probably have too, and people listening probably have too, I've seen things on social media. I've heard people say, look, if we were back in 1942, 43, 44, and the Germans were bombing and Churchill said, no, you got to darken your windows at night and don't leave the house. Back then we'd say, forget it. It's against my charter of rights. I can do what I want. What you're saying is if you could establish that that would keep you safe clearly, then that falls within something that we can broaden our understanding of what is allowed to be stepped over, what line can be crossed, right? I mean, am I reading that right? Correct. Again, the, the, the Charter of Rights says, the first clause of the Charter says that the rights are subject to reasonable limits. But again, it can't just be arbitrary. Those limits have to be reasonable. The policy that's being promoted to restrict our lives has to be connected to the purpose, and in this case is to you know, reduce, uh, reduce viral spread. But here's an example, Scott. There's a ban on outdoor gatherings. You can't have um, your family over if they don't reside with you in your backyard. And that engages 
several sections of the charter. You can't even have three persons in your backyard socially distanced outside where there's no evidence that that can cause viral spread because outdoor transmission is slim to none. We've seen that in the literature over the last uh, 14 months. And uh, if you're distant, I mean, how can you, uh, you know, how are you spreading the virus? How are you at risk? Yet that is, um, but that's prohibited. So that violates several charter rights. So the government is not going to be able to, using a simple example like that, would not, in my view, be able to justify the measure that's being taken because while they're trying to um, eliminate or reduce viral spread, that measure itself is not actually uh, addressing that, yet it's significantly infringing on your ability to to gather with uh, your loved ones, to gather with your friends and do something with this, for all intents and purposes, safe. We only have 15 seconds. I'm sorry for giving you such a little time to answer this last thing, but one area I think people have that is a concern is governments tend to be quick sometimes to take away freedoms, less quick to give them back. Do you worry that when this whole thing is over, that some of the things that have been pulled back are going to not reopen right away, that it's going to be a fight to get them back to normal? Well, I think we've seen that with the various court challenges that that are uh, currently ongoing, and we'll see what the results of those are over the coming months. But and again, I think the, the population has seen so many different charter violations recently. I'm just hopeful that the population continues to speak up about uh, about their rights, um, you know, because uh, like you say, uh, uh, it's a lot harder to get them back once they've been, mm. once they've been given away. Ryan O'Connor, really appreciate, very much appreciate the time today. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. No worries. I appreciate you having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in, as we do every Monday at 7 o'clock, Don Robertson, the guy who runs the Dundas Real McCoys when they are able to play. Uh, He runs ComChoice Realty, which goes all the time. And he is the once and future Citizen of the Year in Dundas, Ontario. Mr. Robertson, how are you this evening? I'm all set, ready to go, and it's been a busy, good day. How are you? Is that right? I, I was disappointed. I wrote something today in the paper and I was kind of disappointed that it wasn't about you. It's the the giant home on Garner Road in Ancaster. 30,000 square feet is up for sale. $49 million. And I was thinking, that should be a Don Robertson listing right there. You could retire after that. <laughs> Susan, not the way I spend money. Susan, I read that article in the paper this morning, and she said, a $49 million house. I said, actually... I would look at it that it's $49 million for the real estate at her free yes. house. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's, so for people who don't know, who haven't seen this story, you can go to the spec.com, lots of pictures. If you want to see the pictures inside the place, it's amazing. Uh, it's 85 acres of Ancaster land at Garner Road and Fiddler's Green. If you've ever driven along Garner, you've seen the house. It's set back. There's gates there. Uh, it's it's an unbelievable house, probably the biggest private home in Canada, but it's on 85 acres that is not yet zoned for residential, but uh, apparently that could be coming. And that, of course, I mean, you're the real estate guy. That would make it pretty enticing for some developers, especially in a city where new home land is getting pretty tight. It won't be. A, it won't be at that price. If there was a good chance of that, I, I I'd be really surprised if the city took uh, took that property out of employment lands. That's what they call it. They need a, a larger industrial and commercial base for taxation purposes. So, uh, I, I my guess is you'll need a new Ancaster councillor before that's going to fly through anytime soon. <laughs> I, I, have, I, I have a question for you though. It was well written. It was it was a cool article being in the business, but. Did you get to go through it or just see the pictures? No, I did not get to go through it. A COVID, unfortunately, does uh, yeah. uh, affect no, things. That. But yeah. And if I had been going through it, Don, I'd probably be lost at this point and there would be search teams out to try and find me because I'd be somewhere in the West Wing, unable to find my way back to the front door. Um, well, you could likely it stay is... for a couple of weeks and the owner wouldn't know. Absolutely. I, I mean, th- think about it, 30, I, I don't know what the average home size is i guessed at you know average give or take two thousand square feet and that's probably higher than average but you're talking about 15 typical homes in one i mean it's a big big house that is a big house Um, Uh, to put it put it in perspective when you drive by a property like that and for those that haven't seen it pay attention because it's just east of fiddlers on garner road but when a prop a house is that far off the road and still looks huge, you know it's yeah. big. 
Yeah. So anyway, I mean, as people are driving by, I think most people are familiar with it. If, if, but anyway, you, you now people are aware. And so if you're out there listening and you've got $49 million burning a hole in your pocket, you're welcome. We just gave you your idea. Actually, if you've got 49, you probably have 50. So feel free to use the extra one that you have to sponsor this show as a thank you for pointing out the opportunity and then spend the 49 on the house and the property and everyone's happy. Uh, Don, I got to ask you, there is, um, there is a hockey game that is going on right now. It started early today. It was a 6.30 start. It's Montreal Canadiens and the Calgary Flames. It's a very important game, but I'm not even going to talk about the game. I got to tell you, on Twitter today, the Canadians have been struggling. They've got this guy who has won the Hobie Baker Award as the top player in NCAA U.S. college hockey. Cole Caulfield is his name. You would think that the Montreal Canadiens were a franchise that had never had superstar players that weren't the home of Guy Lafleur and Rocket Richard and Henri Richard and Larry Robinson and Steve Shutt and Yvonne Cornoyer and... Ken Dryden and Patrick Waugh and on and on and on. The Twitter buzz for Cole Caulfield, a five foot seven kid who's never played an NHL game. You would think this kid that they had somehow cloned Wayne Gretzky and Maurice Richard and Mario Lemieux and Bobby Orr into one Petri dish. It is insane. What is going on with Montreal Canadiens fans? Has it been that long that they have forgotten that they are the franchise that has all the superstars or has in the past? Well, you got to quit asking me questions and answer, taking my answer before I give it away. That kind of tells you the state of the Montreal Canadiens, in my mind. That kind of tells you when was the last time they had a skater of any significance like this that they could talk about. I mean, they've been talking about Carey Price and C won a Calder Cup in Hamilton and is maybe one of their best, one of the best goalers they've had in the last 50 years. And they always have a lot of good ones, but they haven't had any dynamite forwards that they could talk about. I mean, name the last one. It was probably, oh, was there a captain who had cancer? Remember? And Saku Koivu. Saku Koivu. Yeah. And they well, had, and, and a little before. guy. A little before then, they had Stefan Richer, who was a perennial 50-goal scorer. I mean, it has been a while, but they had P.K. Subban, who was a star and a big personality. And I just, I I am just, like, reading Twitter today. Um, let me just tell you, there was, one, uh, there was one tweet by Ken Campbell from the Hockey News today. And he points out, this is what he wrote. He says, interesting to see Cole Caulfield will wear number 22 in his Canadians debut. Steve Schutt scored 408 regular season and 50 playoff goals for the Canadians wearing that number. I'm thinking with the Twitter action that is going on today, if Cole Caulfield doesn't reach those levels in tonight's game, he will be a disappointment. I mean, it's crazy. Isn't, isn't that the one of the troubles with the Montreal Canadiens and to a little bit, just a smidge less, the Toronto Maple Leafs, they build expectations that are almost unattainable for these guys. How can he have a big night? Now, the Toronto Maple Leafs did that with Austin Matthews, and he played the Ottawa Senators in the first game and scored four goals. So he, he, he reached that level, but now he set the bar so high for him, they thought he'd get five or six the next game. But you're right, I don't know, but I think as you pointed out, and I agree that it's been so long since the Habs have had anything of that substance and substantial with ability coming in. And he won the Hobie Baker Award. He's not, you know, he's not, he's not Connor McDavid. He didn't dominate the best junior league in the world. He won a Hobie Baker Award. And there's, I've had Hobie Baker nominees play for me and senior that played a handful of pro games, right? Like maybe two or three years in the American league. So they're not sure fired, but I guess they are in Montreal and well, good luck to the I, kid because don't look I, half a dozen. Yeah. I look, I don't, I don't, I don't wish poor things for him. I don't wish ill on him. I hope he does well. I, I would hope that any young kid that comes into the NHL would be able to carve out a career. I mean, look, they've worked all their life so far. They've put in the time. I mean, I, 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 I don't root against almost anybody. And so that's not it. It's just, it's unbelievable 
what has happened to the Montreal fan base that at one time it was the birthright that you would win the Stanley Cup. It was the birthright that you would have the Jean Bellevaux and the, you know, whomever else that, that you would have the best players or at least many of the best players on your team at any one time. Boy, it, times have changed. If this level of, of overheating excitement is going on for this guy, ah, boy, oh boy, I, I, times have changed. Anyway. It, it's, well, good luck to him because it's not going to be easy. Uh, it dawned on me today that I remember the last guy like this. The last surefire, can't miss, offensive whiz, superstar scoring machine that they had in the system that we that he played in Hamilton for a while, um, and is um, uh, I can't remember what his name was now. Give me a second; I'll think of it in a second because we covered him for a long, long time. Louis LeBlanc. Louis LeBlanc was going to be the guy that was going to be the next Guy Lafleur, and I believe Louis LeBlanc retired with five NHL goals to his credit. I mean, I, I don't know. Anyway, I, I hope well for the kid. I hope Cole Caulfield turns into be a really good player and whatever else. But boy, oh boy, um, good luck! If this is the expectation, good luck to him in that market. I don't know. Well, it's it's a curse, right? When you well, it's a, there, it's a it's blessing a or a curse. If he, if he can live up to it, the guy is going to be the star of stars. But how many people can live up to it? Not very many. Not even Beethoven. Yeah, maybe not. Or Bach or Brahms or whoever else. It's You, you, you set a high standard and then uh, it, it becomes difficult. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a uh, story that came out, well, an interview that came out with Haley Wickenheiser today or last night. And it's a fascinating story because Haley Wickenheiser, of course, went to six Olympics. Uh, She played softball in the Olympics and she played hockey, obviously, as we best remember her for Canada. Won four gold medals. She is also now a doctor. And Haley Wickenheiser has kind of, because she straddles both worlds of sports and medicine she's in a very unique position of having a lot of credibility in both sides and she's come out talking about the tokyo olympics this summer saying you know we're not listening to the right people if we are plunging ahead with these games there's a lot of concerns and we probably should be listening to a lot more doctors and can before we consider whether to send our athletes specifically meaning we probably shouldn't be going to these olympics unless something miraculous happens in the next little while um, what do you think? I mean, when you listen to someone like her, to you, does it carry more weight than if it was just an athlete or just a doctor, first of all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think she, she can, and she's by all accounts pretty sharp. I've never seen her do anything or say anything, you know, kind of off the wall, if you will. And she can put it in a different perspective than anybody can. You, me, I mean, you're a, you're an award-winning journalist, but you, you don't, your credentials don't match hers. She's competed in Olympics and now she's a doctor. And if she's saying that, then you would think that somebody should pay attention to her. I don't, I don't know what she said because as I remind everybody, I I never know what we're going to talk about until we're talking about it. But if, if I were running it and they haven't called me to do that yet, but they may after this, I would think, why don't you just immunize or give all the athletes a, a vaccination now and give them the second one. Well, I mean, I mean there is per- that. If you're worried about the athletes and this is a world event. I mean, sure, it's going to prioritize them and there'll be people squawking about the fact that, well, they, you know, they're being treated like they're elite athletes. Well, they're going to the Olympics. They are elite athletes. And I think right now, um, like I can – tell you right now, Scott, I've watched more hockey, uh, almost for the most part, the Toronto Maple Leafs. I've watched more hockey this year than I ever have in the last quarter century, mostly because I'm not standing on the bench of the Dundas Real McCoys and watching hockey from that vantage point. But I think that the Olympics would be a nice event for people that can't leave their houses to get some enjoyment out of. And I think that for the mental health of people around the world, would be an excellent opportunity to feel better about themselves 
And all, all we have to do, if all we have to do is vaccinate them to make them safe, we should do it. And the, uh, pardon me, any officials uh, and everybody else, of course. Yeah, and I don't disagree with you about your point that, you know, we need something to make us feel good and, and to cheer for and to rally around. I think those are important things. I think you will find enough people, though, in enough countries that would say, wait a second, I'm, I, we can't let our athletes get vaccinated first just because they're athletes. I think politically it's a hot potato. If you could guarantee that every athlete would be vaccinated, I think you probably get rid of much of the concern. But I don't know that politically, and especially with some of the countries, they may not have many of their people vaccinated in time for the Olympics. So it, it is a it is a hot potato. But here's why I find her position so interesting. If you were if you listen to someone who is just an athlete, and I don't mean just like it's somehow not a good thing, but I mean not the medical side as well, just an athlete, they are of course because they've spent probably five years plus whatever time before five years working towards this. They are, of course, going to say, we've got to have the Olympics. I will take my chances. We've got to go. There's no question. Because they've put all these years, every single day into this. And if you talk to just the medical people, I think many of them would say, you can't go to the Olympics. You can't risk running the the possibility of another outbreak there. And so you've got these very conflicting points of view and very conflicting interests you have someone who's done both i find it fascinating that she sounds like and you know i don't want to put words in her mouth but it sounds like she's coming down a little more on the side of the medical than on the athlete that's why i find her comments so interesting because she can she can she can straddle that bridge and understand both sides of the equation oh i agree i mean she's doing it on and off she's doing she's basing her comments on knowledge that uh, a handful of people in the world would have. I can't imagine there's a whole lot of gold medal athletes that are now physicians uh, in the world that have competed in the Olympics. And I'm not going to exclude it to her, but because I clearly, I don't know, but there'll be, uh, there won't be many and they should heed what she says. Uh, But, you know, to uh, reflecting your comment about, all countries, you know, perhaps don't have access to the Olympics. The Olympics is a multi-billion dollar presentation. I'm sure the Olympic Committee can get back, get enough vaccines to make sure everybody that's coming and is qualified is fully vaccinated by the summertime. I think that's, you know, if there's countries that aren't getting the vac- vaccinations that are competing in the Olympics, the Olympic Committee can do that. They can do it with some of the cash they get paid off to take them to various places. I mean, they have the inventory of money to be able to vaccinate the athletes. And if they don't do that, shame on them. But good for Haley Wickenheiser. I mean, that's it's a pretty interesting observation. I don't disagree with that at all. Well, I, I wonder if Haley Wickenheiser is going to be seen as a popular person among the athletes for what she said. Now, I want to be very clear about what she said. She has not said that athletes should not be going to the Olympics. That's not what she said. What she has said is, and I want to be clear, that many that we're listening to the wrong people about this, that the IOC should not be deciding on whether or not there's an Olympics because they are a big business and obviously it's in their vested interest to hold the games. The people that should be being listened to are doctors. And if the doctors say at the time that the Olympics are going to go, hey, sure, go ahead and do it, it's safe, fine, but she's saying this should not be a decision of a multi-billion dollar corporation, as you describe it, that has to have Olympics or else it's going to lose millions and millions and millions of dollars. Well, yeah, see, I, I, I would put the Olympic Committee and the hosts and everybody else in this very similar category as you would put Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau. They, they should be getting all the information that they need. They have all of it at their disposal to know what risks they're putting the athletes, the officials, and the, and, uh, the fans in if they're going to have any. They should know all that. So they, they should certainly never look at the dollars and cents compared to the possibility of a loss of life. I mean, <clears throat> this pandemic has changed a lot in the last two months. You know, we've, we've, we've vaccinated long-term care. That seems to resolve and fix that problem 
to a far greater degree than they were exposed to before. But we had a 13-year-old girl in Brampton die on the weekend. So everybody is now at risk. But to, to eliminate the risk, they should do the right thing. But I can't believe that the IOC don't have at their disposal the same information worldwide that the Premier and the Prime Minister do dealing with our situation in Canada. They know what to do. They know how to make it right. If they're not going to, shame on them. Yeah, and as I say, I'll be very interested to see if if Haley Wickenheiser is seen complementarily. Is that a word? I'm not sure. But you know what I'm getting at by other athletes, yep. especially those who have put so much time in with this as their goal. Because let's, let's remember one thing. I know it's very easy for people to say it's just a sporting event. It's just games. We, we can't risk lives for games. I, I Listen, I hear you. At the same time, if you are an athlete, an Olympic athlete who does not make a big salary, going to the Olympics and excelling at the Olympics and maybe winning a medal can set you up for life, can entirely change your life. This is this is something that not only is an achievement to get to in the experience, but you do well here. You can be as an you can be an instructor, you can be a teacher, you can be a coach, you can live off your sponsorship money. There's it's it's too callous and cavalier to simply say, oh, it's just sports. Forget it. That's way well, too cavalier. You can't ask the athletes, Scott. We, Scott, we've talked about surveys that have happened before. And you, if you ask athletes that are going to compete in the Olympics, if by taking steroids uh, will give them a chance to, to win a gold medal, but they can only live to the age of 45, most of them would say, give me the needle. Like, give me the steroids. If that's what it will take to get me a gold medal, I don't care if I don't live till I'm 85 years old. So you can't ask the athletes. Their their view is skewed. They're not concerned about any of the safety issues. Like, I, I, I rest assured the lion's share of almost every Olympic team around the world, if you polled them and say, you can catch COVID and maybe not compete, or if you do compete and win, it, it you know, could affect you for the rest of your life. They'd say, I'm going. Don, I bet you that if you were to ask every Olympic athlete, every Olympic athlete, and said, there is a 10% chance that if you go to the Olympics, you will get COVID and die. I bet 90% or more would still go because they'd say, well, that's not going to be me. I like my odds. I've been working towards this. And again, I don't think I'm being silly or anything here i would i would bet you money that that would be the thing that they would say it's not going to be me i will take those chances the only the only thing i might disagree with scott on that comment is is your percentages it might be higher than 90 percent. might be might be and we've talked to football players before on this show about the issues of uh cet and and you know post-traumatic concussion, all that kind of stuff from, you know, that we are told is from football. And I've asked football players, former football players on this show, if when you sat down to sign your contract, if they said to you, by the way, there is a 80% chance that when you are done playing football and you hit say 50 or 60 years old, you are going to have significant mental, emotional, intellectual wear and tear and diminishment not necessarily but there's a good chance would you still sign that contract and i've had former players on this show say every single player i have ever met or ever played with would still sign that contract I, and i believe that yeah. i i do too i and this is the olympics this isn't playing no disrespect to the cfl this isn't about playing in the cfl this is the Olympics. This is a world stage. Yeah. No, I, 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 I don't even know what the number would be, but I, I, you know, it, it is, it is to me, it's silly to be cavalier about it and say it's just sports. I know it's just sports in the one hand, but it's, it's not just sports, not to the athletes. And here's the other thing, Don, we got to go to a break. Here's the other thing. When the Olympics are on, Almost everybody is going to be in front of their TV set cheering wildly for those same athletes that we say it's just sports. But when the sports are on and the Olympics are on, it matters to us. 
It really does matter to us. We suddenly become deeply passionate, not in the Summer Olympics, obviously, but in the Winter Olympics, we become deeply passionate about skeleton racing in luge and the biathlon that we have never watched in our life and know nothing about, and suddenly it matters. The rest of the time, we couldn't care less, but it, you know what? We, we care deeply when the Olympics are on. And so, you know, it's a little rich also for people to say, well, it's just sports. It doesn't matter. Well, if that's the case, then show me that you don't watch the Olympics when they're on. And then maybe I will, I will listen. But I don't know how many people fall into that category. Well, I've, I've said before, after the Olympics, and I've watched, I've watched sports at the Olympics that I've never had any interest in watching, you know, until the Olympics before. And I certainly don't decide to go and try and find uh, that some of, the, some of the disciplines that I've watched locally I, I don't have any interest but i don't mind watching the best in the world at it uh you know what don when uh when the modern dressage comes on and you're watching horse dancing at the olympics i will know that you have officially <laughs> you have sold out and you're willing to watch anything and again not making fun of dressage necessarily it's just one of those things that a lot of people don't even know it exists and yet when it comes on they'll go oh okay it's the olympics i'll watch it and we uh, and, and will that you will then officially know I've lost it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, some rough news uh, for sure last week, and that was that the IIHF, the International Ice Hockey Federation, and Hockey Canada and the province of Nova Scotia canceled the Women's World Championship. It's the second year in a row that it's been canceled, and. Um, a lot of people pointing a lot of fingers now saying, you know, that the double IHF is not as concerned with women's hockey as men's, which may be true. Um, but I'm looking at this going, who's to blame here? Is it just COVID and you blame no one or is the double IHF to blame because it doesn't seem to have as much urgency to get women's tournaments going as men's or, or, is it bigger than that? Is this the fan of fans and sponsors? Because if fans and sponsors came out and droves always for women's hockey, then the IIHF might for sure be willing or eager to get these things going. Who do you blame when something like this happens? Well, before I comment, I presume that the men's WIHF world championships are going to take place. They are not in the same province so they're not in nova scotia and because this is a provincial jurisdiction and it was their medical officer of health if it's in a different place and and it's over in europe i believe and over there the medical officer of health or whatever he's called says go ahead it'll happen so it's not exactly apples to apples but a lot of people are looking at it like that yeah i don't i don't think you can blame the w or the iahf on it, if if the host country and host province say you can't have that competition here, I don't know how that lies at the feet of uh, of the IHF. Now, in 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 saying that, I'm sure that there's another country or venue that they could have held it in in Europe. I don't know if that makes it any safer, but most of the European hockey leagues, there's, there's been a number of CHL junior players go over and play in Europe. They played pro because their leagues are all operating. I, I, I stand to be corrected, but I think minor hockey in the United States, all the tournaments carried on. So if you're going to yeah, blame and- somebody, you have to blame the province of Nova Scotia for saying, we're not going to let you do this. And a lot of people have said, well, look, the double IHF could have moved this down to say Texas where things yeah, yeah. are legal. Uh, here, Don, here's point. here's the issue, though, that I find with this. I, I always find it rather rich that so many people who never watch a women's hockey game, have never bought a ticket for a women's hockey game, would maybe only tune into women's hockey in the Olympics when women's hockey gets canceled are suddenly bent way out of shape. And I understand the frustration, absolutely. I mean, look, you talk to... Sarah Nurse from Hamilton or Renata Fast from Burlington or Laura Fortino from Ancaster who are on the national team. You, I feel immense sympathy for them that their career is being pulled out from under their feet with this delay after delay after delay. But if you're someone who has never in any way, shape or form supported women's hockey 
I'm not sure you have the moral high ground to stand on than to scream sexism or favoritism or something else. Because where was your support for this all along? If, if all the people who are screaming about this had bought a ticket or tuned in to watch it on TV, I don't doubt the double IHF would look at those ratings and that numbers and the bottom line and go, man, we got to play this. Well, don't you find that about an awful lot of people that have tremendously hard line opinions on a number of social things that carry on? that really don't have much of a vested interest in them, haven't paid any attention to them, and all of a sudden they, they see a platform and they jump on it, so they get their 15 minutes of fame and say, this is all wrong, and you're going, how long have you been on this cause? 15 minutes? I mean, it happens in every walk of life. We listen far too much to people that have far too little invested, and we listen to their opinion over experts. Go back to Haley Wickenheiser. You know what I mean? Like there are too many people that governing bodies listen to that just decide that they're going to get up on a soapbox and tell everybody else how to run things. And they really have no interest. They just have an interest in promoting how they are better than everybody else. And they know more than everybody else. Those people drive me crazy. It does. And this has been frustrating to me uh, to no end because I can tell you that a number of years ago when the Canadian Women's Hockey League was still playing, Laura Fortino, again from Ancaster, was playing for the Markham team and they had a game in Ancaster at Morgan Firestone Arena. I can't remember who they played. One of the other teams in the league. And it was very well publicized. We wrote stories about it. We, you know, it was it was known. It was out there. I, I, I'm positive that CHCH and CHML both talked about it before and when the thing happens, it was probably only two-thirds full. I think the place holds about 1,000 or 800 people. And I would say 80% of the people there were Ancaster women's or girls' teams that were, it was a team event, but they didn't go there because they were really dying to see a women's game. It was, you know, they were told, you're buying tickets, and so we did it as a team thing. And I look at this and, and I couldn't help but think, okay, so all the times that the media is bashed for not covering women's sports or that people are bashed for not supporting, where is the support? Where is this? Because if you had if you had filled that place up, if the Canadian Women's Hockey League had been jammed every time it played, it would not have folded. And if, if women's games, whether it's basketball or baseball or hockey, whatever, if they were always jammed with fans and the TV ratings were through the roof, organizations would make absolutely sure these things happened. But it's not. No, it's not. And and again, back to, I think, one of the questions you were getting at is so many people that have probably never been to a woman's uh, hockey game, and they're a lot of fun to go watch, but a lot of people that haven't been there will complain to you and the Hamlin Spectator because you don't cover them enough. And they'll have lodged all kinds of complaints, but they won't get off their butt from their couch in their living room to go out and support it. So to my way of thinking, it's the same as if you vote. If you hate Doug Ford, if you hate Justin Trudeau, and I'll listen to you, I'll listen to you all day long, but I'm going to ask you if you voted. And if you didn't vote, I'm walking away from you because you don't get a say now. You don't get a say in our government if you don't vote. You can't use the thing, well, it's all, it's all corrupt. I don't like any of them and everything. You don't get that pass from me. And you don't get that pass on women's hockey if the Ancaster Arena wasn't pre-sold out to complain about how they don't get enough exposure and how it's not respected enough. If you're going to chirp about it and not actually get off your butt and go and support it, to me, just shut up. Stupid. Yeah, no, I, I look. I, I this is an ongoing issue, and and I know we got to go. This is an ongoing issue because people are always saying women are not getting women's sports don't get the same. And, and look, there's no question. Look at the ratings. Look at the ratings. They don't get the same, and a big part of that seems to be what you're talking about that if I really believe that if people watched what they said that people should watch, this would be not even a discussion anymore. The double IHF, if the ratings for this and the money coming into this were so enormous 
that it was crazy for them not to find a way for this to be played. They would have found a way very quickly for this to be played. So I think there's blame to go around, but be very careful if you're going to, in my mind, be very careful if you're going to start throwing sexism around or these things around. If you have never supported it, I don't know how much of a say you should have in that or how much you should be talking about it. Really, I don't. Well, for 25 years, I learned a long time ago, at least a quarter of a century ago, that when you get involved in stuff like this and somebody starts telling you something and and this guy should do this and I'm going to do that, I just watch their feet. And if their feet aren't taking them to that Ancaster Arena to watch Laura Fortino play and that building isn't sold out, all people are doing is sitting around having a glass of wine and chirping about it. But if you won't go and actually participate and do something, then you really, you can think you have a say. You can think you're this or you can think you're that, but you're not. You don't get up yeah, and that, go do it. I'm not No, I, I'm, I'm, look, you, you and I, and I would argue there's an awful lot of people also, uh, big supporters. Uh, you know, I, I wish that women's hockey did way, way better with audiences. I do. I, I I wish that we were talking about Sarah Nurse as someone and and Renata and Laura and others as stars that everybody knew because they all watched. The reality is that's not the case right now. I hope that will change. We'll see. Anyway, we are out of time, sadly. Don Robertson, always appreciate you doing this. Thank you for taking the time tonight. All right, Scott. Interesting show. Thank you very much. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.